welcome today to Just a GP. This is Charlotte Hespie and I have the honour of interviewing Evan Ackerman, Just a GP, passionate about quality. So hi and welcome, Evan. Thank you, Charlotte. That's very nice of you. Yeah, so Evan, we've asked you to come along to talk to Just a GP because I've sort of been working with you a little bit in through, certainly through the RACGP and I've certainly been really inspired by your passion and I think passion's the right word for quality and this goes beyond what most people might think about quality and you really are willing to go and stand on very high pedestals to preach and teach and I think bring people into understanding what quality is about. So I thought it would be a great opportunity to actually get you to sell that story for yourself. Okay. So before we start, what's been a really good thing about your week in this past week? Oh, look, Charlotte, I've, I've, I've experienced my birthday, would you believe? Ah, congratulations and happy birthday. Thank you very much. I won't tell you how old, but it was a really, really good day. And I, I just, it really inspired me about the, the modern day world because uh, all my children rang, rang me on the day and my daughter was in Sri Lanka. Uh, my son was in India. Uh, my other son was in Perth at the time. And it just really underlined the fact that uh, our children really live in a different world to what we lived in and how easy it is to travel and to communicate and to get around. And I had a really lovely day. It was very supportive and a lot of friends around. And it was uh, no presents, but uh, very, very nice. So that was, that was a highlight of my week. And uh, yeah. Fantastic. A lovely highlight. The, the joy of a birthday is about, well, I think the presents were their phone calls, weren't they? They were. They were. My daughter's a medical student and uh, she actually was doing her term in Sri Lanka in the hospital and uh, she had some wonderful stories and wonderful experiences there. So it's nice that they can do that sort of thing nowadays. Yeah, what an opportunity. Lucky her. Hmm. So a highlight for me this week, on Saturday night I got to go and see a play at the Sydney Theatre. Well, the Sydney Theatre Company was running it. It was at the Opera House in Sydney uh, called How to Rule, Rule the World. <laughs> and it, it's an interesting play because it's a real, it's a political spoof on the sort of the current Australian politics and it goes very close to the bone about some real scenarios, a bit like that Yes Minister type mm-hmm. way of, of comedy. But it was also the same night as the New South Wales government was actually having its own election. So there was some real sort of close to the bone feeling about the story. But it was fantastic because often politics is something that we don't really like talking about with our close friends or thereabouts in case they are diametrically opposed and you don't want to end up with some big conversation. But went with a big group of friends from medical school and it was just, it was a lot of fun Hmm. really being able to, you know, have a laugh about some of the dreadful things that happen in in our (laughs) political circles. It's fascinating the political sphere, isn't it? I mean, when when you're associated with it, you you do admire the politicians for their commitment to community because the reality is most politicians are committed to doing something and, and, and doing some good with their time but you know that sometimes you know and they're very very nice people as as individuals but 
it's almost once they start getting into the group thinking, the group way of managing things, it, it almost changes a little bit. And I, I've been fascinated with some of the politicians over my career, and uh, they've actually taught me a few things as well. So I, I, I find that the whole life is fascinating, that they can go into a, their job, for example, and be voted out after three years, and that's the end of their career. It's just amazing. Yeah, I think you have to have a very thick skin and I don't think mm. I'm the right sort of person for that. But that's okay. I'm I'm very happy being just a GP because mm. really it's the most wonderful thing you could be. Mm. So quality, Evan. Yes. Quality. Where would you like to take us on our journey today? Like most things in my career, it started by accident. Um, uh, my career in quality started when I was in an accident and emergency department in Redcliffe Hospital. My I think my second term in medicine, and I was upset at the lack of support uh, we as junior doctors were getting, uh, particularly for overdoses, and I hated overdose uh, presentations. And so I decided to to do an audit on that and uh, present it to the grand rounds. And so I diligently went and audited all the overdoses for two years at Redcliffe Hospital. and. What I didn't realize, in fact, what I had done, is when I presented the data, the fact was that uh, we were injuring and killing just as many people as we were saving with our overdoses from the treatment we were actually given. So I didn't realize that when I was presenting at the time, but there I was in the middle of this really huge lecture hall with these multiple doctors suddenly starting to argue and blame each other for these overdose deaths. So that was my baptism of fire for um, for quality and measuring quality. And in fact, being involved with um, drugs too, because I think um, medication and drugs is one of the big safety issues of our time. And we really need to address this in a, a really uh, thorough and appropriate method. So. That's how it all started and I was rapidly advanced along an administrative and quality assurance um, process by the powers that be. I was then put into a medical superintendent's role where I not only had to look after the, uh, the care of patients in a rural hospital but also administered it as well. And that was a really eye-opening experience uh, from a quality perspective because then you started to have a look at the quality of the uh, work that doctors would provide and trying to provide some oversight of that and uh, ensuring some standards within a hospital and that was particularly difficult at the time. So that's where all my quality journey started. So I'm still involved in it. I, I still love it. I think it's um, one of the great areas of medicine where, which really characterizes us as a profession, particularly in general practice. We're proud of the outcomes that we provide and um, they are very, very good outcomes for the health system and the health system relies on general practice in a big way uh, for the health of their country. So I'm proud that as a just a GP or just at a personal level for patient level and a system level I've been uh, very much involved in the quality assurance activities of general practice. So can I ask Evan then where does so the stories you're talking about are sort of accident and emergency and hospital how does that actually relate to the way in which we look at quality in general practice? And at the same time, I'm going to throw in another thing is how do we understand variation in care? 
Well, they're, they're very difficult questions. I think that, you know, we'll take the latter part first, variation in care. There's always going to be some variation in care because variation is part of life. Some people are, well, people are people and uh, no one accepts a, a general inverted commas standard of care. And I think it's good that we don't have a standard of care. We're actually very, very good at indiv individualising care for our patients and matching what is best for what we see in the person in front of us. So I, I think that's very important for general practice. And it's the classic finding that people always say that GPs are very, very poor, or not very poor, are poor at going along guideline care, but in fact get better outcomes. And the reason we do that is we tailor solutions to patients, which is not easily measurable. So then going back to, to saying, how does that focus on uh, quality in general practice? I think measuring quality in general practice is very, very difficult. I think it's difficult because you can't measure the context often in uh, the care environment that that care that we give general or give our patients is in. Um, and the classic example there is if someone presents with an upper respiratory tract infection, your first patient that might do it might be a, a child who's otherwise well, six or seven years old, who's going to cope. The next child who's six or seven might have just had chemotherapy for a tumour. That's a totally different situation. The next patient you might have is someone who's immunocompromised in some other fashion. So unless you can measure the context often in general practice, it's very difficult to measure the, the quality of care that you're providing. So it's a level of complexity, I think, that uh, general practice has that the hospitals don't have. But I, I still think it's very, very challenging and a, a very rewarding place to get into to start measuring the sort of quality that general practice does provide. So you have done some work looking at hospitalisation prevention, yes. which is aligned with this. So can you maybe then flesh out some of those measures? Because I know you've done a lot of thinking around where does general practice quality value care fit into hospitalisation prevention? Yes. I think that this is a very important indicator that uh, potentially preventable hospital admissions from a national point of view. It's one of the few indicators that general practice has and one of the few indicators that the Productivity Commission uses to look at the appropriateness and the performance of general practice. And the potentially preventable hospital admissions indicator has been around for 30 years or so, and it hadn't been reviewed for that long. And to be frank, the, the data behind it and the assumptions that were underpinning it were totally incorrect. Um, and even though multiple PHNs and hospitals were using the preventive hospital, or P, I'll say PPH indicator as a quality metric for years and years and years. So just recently, in the last four years, our quality care, uh, in association with the ARHW, decided to clean up that indicator and look at all the data issues behind it. And that's been four years now, and that's available now as a GP indicator, but it's now hopefully in a method and a format where you can start looking at the data and trusting that as an indicator for health care and outcomes for that. And like I, I expected it would be, it's shown some, some good and bad issues and I think we can now start addressing those as a health sector. It's a very complex area. Yeah, it is a complex area. So 
let's bring it back to to me as a GP in my practice. What does that actually mean to me? And what things might I be starting to look at if I'm really wanting to feel that I might be challenged about what I can do or can't do better? Okay. So let's um, take it from a general practice perspective. I think if your uh, local indicator is saying uh, potentially preventable hospitalisation is saying something abnormal, just say easily say that it's um, from heart attack or stroke, let's say that. Suppose your local hospital has high levels of heart attack and stroke admissions that are potentially preventable. Within your practice, you can now say, I can link that now with my own quality indicators looking at cardiovascular risk and how well we manage people with high cardiovascular risk and how we manage those in a secondary prevention sort of role. So we can now start linking quality indicators from the primary care sector to those within the hospital as well. There are indicators in the hospitals looking at admissions from hypoglycemic events in the elderly. We can now start looking at your management of the elderly in your practice population to see how well uh, you're managing that group and if you are indeed contributing to preventable hospital admissions. So there's lots of possibilities now that we can approach from a quality perspective now that we have that data. Okay, so again... As a you know GP working in a practice, who's actually going to do that work, and or how am I going to do it? I think this is this is one of the issues. I, I think the college has had a very difficult time selling the the quality message to government for a long time. Governments had this view that they want general practice to do more and more to prevent hospital admissions, but there's really been no infrastructure behind that to to start that ball rolling. And we've really had inaccurate data to do that. Well, the first step is gone now. We've now got some accurate data. Now we need the appropriate infrastructure there. And that's where the PHNs can start developing this issue. They can analyze the data that's there. They can assist some of the general practices in start, starting to implement systems of care that will address those particularly preventable hospital admissions. So it's, it's about gathering support and infrastructure across the board within your PHN to address these things. And it's not an easy thing to do. I think now that we've got the infrastructure there, we can start addressing these issues, Charlotte. Okay, so it's about sort of trusting to work with your PHN and saying that the data that they've got and the people that they've got on staff are going to help me be able to to do some of that work. I think that the final piece in the uh, equation is the PIP funding. The PIP funding has been going around for years and it's really been a funding source that really hasn't had any purpose, or it's had very little purpose, I should say. I mean, it was initially done to uh, introduce the computerization in general practice. It did that well. Uh, It was done to aid nursing within general practice and it's done that well. Now it's trying to toy around this quality improvement activities and toying about some concept and there's been no real concrete interventions or processes to address key health issues. Well, I think there is a key health issue here about preventive uh, preventive hospital admissions that we should be able to address with that PIP funding. Thanks. I'm also sort of interested in that sort of idea of um, the, for me, what I get really bothered about is keeping on hearing about the GP 
attendances at accident emergency that are unnecessary. So not, well, not so much the ones that have come from general practice, but people who go to accident emergency who should just be, in inverted commas, being going to a GP. And they use the level four and five as that measure. Now, my experience is, is that I will often, well, not often, but I send patients to hospital that might be classified as a level four or five, but I'm sending them to hospital because I can't actually manage them at this point in time in the community and they need to have the hospital service for some reason or other. And I don't think that it's a particularly good measure at just saying how many people go to accident emergency who could be seen mm. in general practice instead. So are there ways that we in general practice can actually help talk about that story? Yes. And, and inform it better? Yes. Uh, it starts with the measure. Uh, the measure that they have using those uh, Category 4s and 5s is a, is a false measure to use. It's an acuity measure. It has no bearing whatsoever on that presentation in accident emergency. So uh, it, it's a flawed measure. Uh, we've done some work here at the PHN to look at different measures based on their coding and looking at um, categorising patients in a different way. And um, it gives a much better insight as to, to what actually happens in uh, accident emergency centres. I'll give you some concepts behind that. And the, there's no real line that should be drawn about what is an accident emergency presentation and what is a GP presentation because, frankly, you know, GPs can manage a lot of the accident emergency presentations that uh, are around. And there are patients who are going to make a choice. If someone has a dislocated finger, yes, they could go to their GP and get that fixed, or they can go to the accident emergency centre. So there are areas in care where it's appropriate to either go to your GP or your accident emergency centre. I think when we analyse the data here, 40% uh, of presentations were acceptable, really high-class accident emergency presentations. There's no doubt that should go to the accident emergency department. There's about another 20% where it could either go to a GP and, um, or to the hospital, but the other 40% was, look, this really should be going to, to general practice care. And some of them were for very simple things. It was writing prescriptions. Um, it was for uh, injections, simple medical certificate presentations. These were all very, very basic sort of presentations that are really going to accident emergency for some reason. So I think it starts again with how you measure the problem. Then once you measure your problem appropriately, you get insights into how you're going to address the problem. And a lot of these problems, some of it was inappropriate use after hours. There was an after hours issue, but a lot of it, uh, it was being used by some of the low socioeconomic groups who felt the hospital was their centre of excellence and their centre of care. So it's very difficult to start addressing. Thanks, Evan. wonder if I can take us on a little tangent. Mm -hmm. Again, sort of on that whole thing about quality, how do we really sell our story to government and to other doctors about A, the joy of complexity in general practice and B, about the value add that primary care gives in looking after patients with multimorbidity and complexity in a way that single stream medical specialties can't do? 
I think that's a very difficult question, selling anything to politicians, <laughs> just quietly. And it's about creative use of data that you've got. It's about creatively using your networks of consumers to help uh, sell the, the benefits of general practice. It's about having a process in place of continual government lobbying and because, you know, I think we've tried this one-off and continued one-off uh, application to government and it doesn't work. I don't, I don't think we've had one budget, budget submission to, uh, from the college to government or for budget nights that have ever worked. Uh, so I think there's a, a, a better, newer strategy that the college has undertaken about getting its process in Canberra, building long-term relationships with the politicians and the political parties and the key groups and start influencing this change on a small but regular, um, in a small but regular manner. And it's so difficult to do. The, the only recognised way I can see this, and you know, I, I hate to say it, but the Pharmacy Guild do it. They know all the politicians by their first names, and they're regularly attending political functions. They're regularly lobbying personally. They're just regularly making contacts and visits. So they build very good personal relationships and that's how they have influence, unfortunately. So for the college to do that for, for general practice, I, I think we're doing the right thing, to be honest, Charlotte. You know, we 10 years ago, we decided that we're going to have a presence uh, in Canberra. We're going to have a build a presence in the community with our advertising and try to get involved in every sort of conversation about primary care. So the press realise now that uh, if you want to talk about general practice, you go to the RACGP. The government realise now that if you want to talk general practice, you go to the RACGP. I think these are important steps, you know, long-term steps that we've undertaken that will get some results eventually. But uh, it's a hard sell to go and convince policy, as I'm sure you're aware. Yeah, I suppose from my perspective, I don't understand why we don't have a long-term sort of vision for healthcare in Australia because when you look at some of the international sort of approaches to health, they obviously have a long-term plan mm. that they slowly build upon. And the problem that I see with Australian healthcare, which as an aside I'll say I think we're so lucky, we really do have by and large, really high quality healthcare. But, you know, it's like you and I are passionate about, we could always do better. Um, we can certainly improve and you can only do that by, you know, going back, looking at it, reviewing it and sort of building upon it. But we mm. just don't seem to, to do that. We do small projects, you know, all the funding that sort of comes, you'll get this pot of money that looks good, but then it disappears again after three years. And there's been this sort of progressive undercutting of the Medicare system. Mm. And it just, it worries me because I do, I love Australian healthcare. I love general practice. And it'd be nice to sort of see us being able to really be able to show what that can do and why, particularly as a sort of a team-based, everybody in there together approach. Yeah. Look, I, I think one of the, the, the failings of college and probably the system is not to have a primary healthcare strategy. I think we tried to do it at one stage and the college also, you know, when it's brought out its funding model, that basically implied what 
uh, sort of a strategy that we thought the government should fund in primary care. And it was open, you know, it was an open door to come to the college and uh, discuss what they wanted to see the future of general practice to be. But I think we're in such a dire place in health management. I, I mean, we, I don't think there's the expertise within the governments uh, to look at major health reform. I don't think there's a willingness within either side of parties or either parties to see major health reform. I think uh, they're happy with the, the hospitals the way they are and uh, health the way they are because they know if they try to change things in a major way, it's almost political suicide. And that's just the, the political environment that we're in. So I think that's a reality, unfortunately. And the only way we're going to change is small incremental changes that um, people won't mind too much. Oh, it definitely needs to go small and incremental. Mm. Now, we're getting a bit heavy here. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. No, we, we, we let, let's sort of lighten it up, though. What, what are the things that really push your passion button if we're talking about quality and general practice? Well, look, I'm still I'm still going on about med- medication safety, and you know, one of the things that uh, the criticism against me is, I they they say I'm against pharmacists and against pharmacists in general practice. I'm actually not. I'm actually for pharmacists in general practice, but not the way they want to see it. Um, and I I think uh, there is such a, a big role, a big opportunity to progress and change the way we have or deliver medications and manage medication in primary care, but it really needs some organisation. You know, the problem is pharmacy have this approach that uh, they see the solutions to primary care are the, the interventions that are prescribed to them, you know, the medication reviews, the reconciliations and all those sort of things. Well, the evidence has been, we've had 20 years of evidence now, medication reviews and RMRs, and the outcomes are are not that great. In fact, they're very poor. So we need to start reinventing this whole process of how we deliver medications within primary care and how we manage them. And uh, I'm I'm actually involved with uh, developing some software here at the PHN to look at medication management within general practice. And so that's a real driver still for me, the how we uh, manage quality in general practice from a medication point of view, because there are lots of gaps still going in primary care, I can tell you. And we need to be able to address it quickly because medications are just getting more and more complex. Our, our patients are becoming more and more complex and we need that infrastructure support for every primary care, every general practice, if we're going to meet the future needs. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm really looking forward to the day when we can actually have a pharmacist working in our practice, though, because I can, you know, like I haven't ever heard anyone who's not had one in their practice talk about the benefits but also too about the software thing is a is a really good thing to talk about because we know that the software can get in the way of but also really improve our prescribing and our ability to deliver safer medication management and I mean I've been passionate about the my health record as an opportunity to really be able to improve our sort of reconcile you know what they call the medication reconciliation thing Mm. between what the patient is actually doing what we're prescribing what the pharmacist is giving and what happens when they go into hospital Mm. but again it's the it's an opportunity but the software and the number of clicks that we have to do and just adding more tasks to the things that we do in general practice get 
still get in the way of that actually being what it could potentially be. And I think that's one thing I'd love to, you know, people to spend more time is how do you do it in an, an automated way that's safe and that we don't ignore the red flags or the red flags mean something or, I mean, I don't know. I, I live in this sort of little cocoon sometimes of hopefulness that we can actually develop systems that do make it easier rather than harder. Oh, you're, you're, you're talking my language, Charlotte. This is good stuff. And we haven't even started pharmacogenetics yet. So it's, um, there's some... Yes, it's that individualised care, isn't it? Yeah. I was hearing this really interesting uh, report about, you know, the personalised chemotherapy and, well, basically oncology management for cancers Mm. and fascinated because they were sort of talking about that it's not just about you know the personalized care it's also now about playing this using gaming theory so that you actually have to think about beating cancer like playing a difficult computer game Mm. but then they were also talking about the role of evidence and I thought you know this is very much like general practice at the end of the day because I sort of think about, you know, it's very much about the patient in front of me. It's about me being able to figure out all the things that we have to fight. We're fighting against all the social determinants of health. We're fighting against all the different funding elements and all the other bits of our life that gets in way of each other. Plus, we're having all the the sort of that game between, you know, their diabetes and their COPD and their diverticular disease and their vertigo and their eyes going, you know, like you that whole thing about and how you actually then have any ability to say well it's not going to be able to be evidence-based for everything because all of the things that we get anything evidence about is on each of those as a standalone thing and and that just doesn't work when we're trying to personalize it for that person in front of us yeah i think you're right but again the, the software shouldn't be there pulling you up it should be there aiding you and giving you you good decisions and um uh I, I, I'm finding it actually the the stuff that's often um, ignored in your medical record that actually can support you. you know, from a pharmacogenetic point of view, you know, I, I think we're all aware of that some people need high doses of PPIs to get uh, symptomatic relief, or that they're using a PPI with a, a H2 antagonist to get relief of their reflux or what have you. That's actually an indicator that they've got a pharmacogenetic problem. We're all aware that some people just don't respond to some antidepressants. Or you go through multiple antidepressants and it doesn't work, and then some one suddenly they're toxic. They get severe side effects from them. That's actually an indicator of, of a pharmacogenetic problem. So, in fact, we have got all the data or much of the data within our databases already to link people to pharmacogenetic problems. And it's about using that data in a creative way to then support GPs into better prescribing. So it's, it's just a mindset about how you, um, you know, organize your, your IT system and how you get that support system in place. Not so it's warning GPs and what have you, but actually giving them good information to make better decisions. I think that's, that's the challenge for us. Yes, it's that uh, it's the playing the game of it, aiding and abetting us rather than getting in the way. Yeah. And- and having it so that you enjoy it as you do. I mean, I uh, there's nothing better than having a – I love playing around with the medical record of the patient in front of me to make sure that I feel like I'm adding as good value as I can to the mm. visit before they go out the door. 
And but I'm sort of very mindful too that you know you how do I sell that passion to my registrar or the other doctors in my surgery without them feeling like it's an imposition, you know, that I'm not asking them to do more things, but rather to share, yep, this is really fun when we are looking at it in this sort of way. Mm. <laughs> oh, look, um, I, I, used to, I used to do all the quality audits for my old practice. And uh, we'd look at prescribing issues and we'd look at, um, you know, problem issues about prescribing and I'd anonymize it. I'd, you know, make sure people didn't, weren't, weren't identified and I'd say, you're, you know, you're prescriber one, two, three or four or what have you. And they used to just go, oh, I'm prescriber one. I'm, I'm terrible. And they used to find out who, who exactly did all that prescribing and, um, you know, they, they made a, a mess of me basically because I tried to anonymize it all. But in the end, even though you know it did highlight some both good and bad prescribing habits, uh, they made fun of it, and eventually the behaviour changed, and everyone improved. So it's not a matter of you know that you've got bad prescribers; it's a matter of just discussing things, going over what is good and bad prescribing, having some tolerance, having a you know putting it in a professional way that professionals deal with it, and allow allow people just to manage and. If you do it that way, and then it's not a, a finger pointing or um, punitive means, then people will manage it and people will change and they'll improve the quality of care that they're providing. Yes, well, I think some of those punitive things are out there though, aren't they? Yeah. And that's the, the, the trouble. I'm made to sort of think though when you're sort of talking about that, I, I'm now old enough, Evan, that you know, there's been a number of iterations of recommendations that you get to how you prescribe. And, you know, when it first came out, you prescribed X and then you were told, well, actually, no, you shouldn't be doing X, you should be doing Y. And then it's, well, you know, you should be doing this instead. And then they've pulled it back. No, it's X again. And, well, no, then actually you shouldn't be prescribing anything at all. And so it is difficult, I think, as the GP, where you are – You've got all of that knowledge in your head as you get old or as a young young one, you've got what you're told is the here and now and you have to make sense of all that to make sure that you are doing the best job you can for the person in front of you because I think often it's about morphing all of that information together mm. to actually give that the most evidence-based treatment you can do at that time for that person, which is on a narrative of what is the context of what they're wanting to achieve and what what's needed. That's right. It's how your your therapeutic approach, what informs your therapeutic approach. And, you know, I, I think you know, aspirin, digoxin, there's a number of drugs. Statins uh, have all gone through this process of, you know, continual evidence review. HRT, let's throw HRT. Yeah, <laughs> classic one. And, you know, I, you know I'll, I'll go back to Prescribing. And can I throw in opi- opiates as well there? You can Evan, throw in opiates, you can throw in benzodiazepines with going through, you know, it's, uh, they're appropriate things to discuss here. The issue is I, I think you, you have some wisdom when you've gone through all this and you've seen the, the waves of enthusiasm when a new drug comes out and, you know, followed by the wave of optimism that it'll, you know, cure everything and then suddenly the evidence comes out that it's not so good and it, you drop back below the line to everyone stopping prescribing it and then someone comes along and says, you know, here's the evidence where, you know, it's reasonable, you can give it in these cases and say so the use goes up again. I think hormone replacement therapy is a good one for that. 
Oh, yes, it certainly is. It's, but I suppose that's where we have that dilemma as, as the GP. And we do need to be able to have the tools around us that facilitate it. But at the end, it's about using our brains and... Yeah, uh, look, I, I think you're right. It's why, you know, we don't often follow the guidelines because we, you know, understand the context and treat the best we can for the patient in front of us. I mean... You see, I'd say we do follow the guidelines, mm. but no. We, it's about how you say follow the guidelines. We may be aware of the guidelines, but we vary the guidelines because the person in front of us needs to have them varied. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we know there are some people out there who will never take a statin. They've had a heart attack, but they'll never take a statin. They'll eat broccoli ice cream, they'll exercise to the, you know, crows come home, but they won't have a statin. And that's great. That's fine. That's, that's how we'll manage it. We'll manage it differently. Hormone th- replacement therapy is exactly the same thing. Or even the pill. You can warn about the pill and migraines and aura for some women, but they'll make a decision through shared decision-making that they'll want to keep going with the pill. You cope with that. That's the way it happens. And it's and it's the joy, isn't it? But the I think, you know, it's watch this picture, isn't it? It's going to be, I think it's going to be more and more exciting, particularly if we can get that the narrative, which I think is changing, about the value of primary care, the value of where GP led teams with the patient at the centre of the care is actually going to really be the way in which we should be funding healthcare and I think, you know, moving forward in terms of de- delivering better value quality care. Yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah, they, they, I'm, I'm, well, I, I should know about There are uh, care programs and care processes that are very good from a team-based perspective, but I still think that hasn't been um, delineated as to what, when is that appropriate? When is team-based care appropriate? And when is, you know, continuous solitary uh, care appropriate? Because there's a lot of evidence for continuity here and uh, some evidence for team-based care. So where where's the differentiate, uh, differentiate between uh, an individual and team-based care? Because everyone now is pushing this team-based care approach to everything. And a classic. Can I, can I, can I interrupt? You on yeah. Because I, I, I'm absolutely with you, and I suppose I want to go back on from my perspective. What is team-based care is probably a, a sideways. It's a different definition of maybe what, say, team-based care might look like in the hospital. I see team-based care as where the GP and the patient look at all the things that they're needing in order to improve the the health of them. They therefore go out and get those people and include them in the conversations. Mm -hmm. So rather than it being 10 silos of different people doing things without actually being aware, it's about all of us being aware of the role that we might play. And the continuity of care is the GP, well, patient is the continuity of care, but the GP is there to help coordinate what is best there. Does that That's the actual perfectness in theory. But in reality now, what you've got is other people in primary care saying, no, team-based care is team-based care. And if I present to a pharmacist, the pharmacist can organise some team-based care outside of you. Or if I uh, go to someone else, a physio, that can be part of it as well. So you start getting fragmentation of these sort of issues. Now, just recently, the college had a... um, proposition from a group of allied health people about managing or screening and managing pre-diabetes 
they're going to go with a health description that pre-diabetes is a major issue and that they're going to use this politically to go and canvas for or lobby for improved management for pre-diabetes in the community external to general practice so ah so that's yep and those things we need to jump on i'm with you but yeah it's it's this concept of you know how do you define team-based care and you're very good you know you've got team-based care with a gp at the center others define team-based care quite differently yep that's where we need to be strong even and we need to stand together and say why we think that that's best but at that point i'm going to pull us up because we've been having a great chat we could keep going all afternoon Mm. but i'm mindful we don't Really, you know, we're just going to have to call you back and have another chat about the com- those that sort of emergent talk about well, what is team based care and what is continuity of care and what's the best model that we can do in the Australian setting, and why don't you give me a pointer? What's your hot tip of the week? <laughs> oh. My hot tip of the week is to always organise your care around quality and safety, and not the government funding models of the day. I think as professionals, we have to keep on recognising this because if we rely on governments to fund us and we just base our care on the funding models, then I don't think we as a profession are going to go anywhere. I think we've got to be very proactive and continue to provide care that is responsive to our communities, to the people who are around us, and take responsibility for our our finances and uh, charge accordingly. So that's my hot tip for today. Controversial it may be, but that's where it is. No, it's not controversial. It's it's very, I think it, it goes in with what you've been talking about. Thanks, Evan. So mine is actually just about, well, it's really, it's about having fun with your medical software and go and find new toys to play with Mm. having said that we we use best practice and we just this week put on the sms messaging for results which we're just having a little bit of a play with to see whether it works for us and for our patients um and so just this week three of us have been having a little play using the sms button in the results tab okay Yep, and that, that, that's going to be, I think, interesting. It certainly say, it does save time because the way we've done it in our practice before is that I write a letter to everybody with everybody's results. There'll be people rolling their eyes at me, but then I know I've got a good trail of making sure everybody has a result and everybody has been informed and it's my personal clinical audit about making sure I do that. So we're just looking at how we can use the SMS. So my encouragement to everyone is go and have a look in your software and find what new toys you can use to maybe decrease the time that you have to spend doing some of the tasks that you're doing at the moment. It's those systems of care, isn't it, that that make GPs a little bit different because our previous system of care was we had a uh, nurse responsible for the recalls. And so that means it was done to a standard. But we had seven different accepted instructions to our nurse uh, you know return urgently you know return within 24 hours you know routine appointment or whatever and she would make sure that everyone was informed either they were phoned as soon as possible with their results or they got a letter the, the standard letters one two or three letters so that way we knew as a large practice uh, our recalls were absolutely performed 
But it's interesting you had a, a different way because the SMS messages, I think uh, we had a, a problem with because uh, we couldn't guarantee that they were delivered and we couldn't necessarily guarantee that uh, the person who was the recipient was going to receive them for some, oh, there was some other issue with it. So, yeah, look, I think there's problems with everything, isn't there? I mean, with the mm. post, I've had that where you know you've sent something and it doesn't arrive. I mean, and you don't know that it hasn't. So, ah, the joys and the <laughs> all these things. Yeah, oh, I, I'm interested to see how it goes, Charlotte. I really am. I'd be interested to, if it's successful or not. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah. So. Thank you, Evan. It's been a really interesting chat, and I'm let everybody say so farewell to you for the moment to just a GP who's passionate about quality.